Um, so let's see. Tim, uh, Tim, I think, is going to do most of the talking today. I just wanted to start out for a second um, um, clearing up a little confusion that came up last time about the, the account in thermodynamical language of the content of the second law. So Tim got worried at some point um, uh, about something like this. Um, we, defined, uh, we defined entropy differences thermodynamically as evaluations over uh, the entropy difference between two states, say A and B, um, as the uh, 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 as the uh, as the sum of dQ over T evaluated over a reversible root connecting A and B. And then we went on to show that in the case of irreversible transformations from non-equilibrium states A to other possibly equilibrium or non-equilibrium states B, the entropy necessarily increases. Um, in accord with the second law. That is, the entropy as calculated over reversible roots uh, by the method I just described. Um, at this point, Tim got worried along the following lines. How could it be that, um, um, that there are reversible roots, um, um, that, that we can find reversible roots connecting non-equilibrium states, say, to other non-equilibrium states? Um, or something like that, reversible roots necessarily connect, or at least in some sense it seems they must necessarily connect only equilibrium states to equilibrium states because they occur in this quasi-static way. That is, they, what, what's crucial to their reversibility is that, say, as we're pulling the piston out, we're pulling it out slowly enough so that the gas has a chance to equilibrate to each new position of the piston as it's slowly going out. And it's that fact about these transformations that's crucial to their being reversible, that's crucial to their restoring the original thermodynamic state when we, when we carry them out in reverse. Everybody with me so far? Okay. Everybody. So, look, there better not be a worry like that at the end of the day, um, or else, you know, or else there wouldn't be a way to show in the thermodynamic vocabulary that irreversible transformations increase the entropy. What's the deal here? The deal is as follows. Remember how we showed, for example, that the entropy of a state like this is lower then the entropy of a space like this okay um, what we did was as it were in a trivial way analyze this non-equilibrium macro state into equilibrium macro states of its two component subsystems okay um, that is this this, um, this object is not at the same temperature throughout. Um, it's not at an equilibrium condition. But 
Um, if, but we can, we can divide it, we can analyze it into two subsystems, each of which are in this, at the same temperature throughout, each of which are at equilibrium states relative to gross constraints that would isolate them within there. Everybody with me here? And what we do, then, um, is find reversible routes for this, that, that lead us from this to this, and that lead us from this to this, okay? That amounts to a reversible route, leading us from this to this, okay? And that's how we do the calculation, okay? That's how, they, if you look in, if you look in Fermi's book on thermodynamics, which we were mentioning last time, that's how the calculation has been done, you know, for, for a century and a half or so um, now. So, um, um, so I just wanted to clear that up, you know, the, the, well, I, is this, is this now clear to everybody? Yes? Is it clear what the worry was? Okay. That is, it's absolutely right, um, um, that, uh, that reversible transformations take the system in question through a sequence of equilibrium states, starting in an equilibrium state and ending in an equilibrium state. Um, that's true of both of these separately. It's not true of the system as a whole. Everybody with me? Good. Any questions about this? Or, or before we go on about thermodynamics more generally, because we're sort of done with thermodynamics at this point, and we're going on to the statistic, to examining its statistical mechanical underpinnings. No? Good. It's yours. Okay. Um, anybody know how to use a computer to record a video off the camera in it? I mean, I have the camera on, but I can't figure out any way to record it. I was what program have you got using it? Oh, I, 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 the only way I could turn it on was through iChat. And there's an application. Um, it could be GarageBand. No, it's not the other one. I didn't see how to do it the first time. All right, well, that was my idea, but I guess I can't do it. Okay. But so then you know what? At least get it out of the way of the audio. Right. Okay, so... What I want to do is, is, excuse me, Professor. What? Give me your computer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What I want to do now is really work through what Maxwell and Boltzmann did. <clears throat> I've been threatening you with this, finding the Stoßall Ansatz for a while. And we're going to do that today. And I want to, you know, there's, if you start to actually read what they did, there's a lot of mathematics and there's a lot of complications. But I think you can get a really clear idea in simple cases of what's going on. So you can see what really the supposition is that is allowing them apparently to derive thermodynamic behavior, the sort of behavior predicted by the pure thermodynamic laws that David's been talking about from these statistical mechanical underpinnings. And we, of course, have in the back of our mind some puzzles about how that might be possible. So let me just remind you where we were. We said that, that in 1860, Maxwell already derives a distribution 
And again, you can you can write this down for various quantities. What I did last time was write it for the speed. That's not going to work. Do you want to use the black thing? Is that better for you? Oh, maybe it is. Okay. So we're going to put time in here. Uh, because ultimately we're going to be worried about how this quantity changes in time. Although, almost by definition, at equilibrium, it's not changing in time, right? It's stationary. Uh, and this V is just the square root of the velocity in the x direction. So this is the speed, right? The, the point is, this is just a, a scale, it's just a number, it doesn't have a direction. Uh, because we started out asking, in equilibrium, how should this be distributed? And we had a couple assumptions. One was, uh, remember, what we, there are two things we want to worry about the distribution. We want to worry about the distribution of the positions of the particles. We've got this huge number of particles in the box of gas. And we want to worry about the distribution of their velocities. And we started out by saying, well, it's kind of obvious that at equilibrium, the distribution of positions ought to be uniform in the sense that, again, I've got, I've got some box with volume V, and if I take some little box inside, and let's call this link L, so the volume of this guy is L cubed, as long as L cubed is big enough that it should contain lots and lots and lots of individual model, uh, uh, atoms, if I make it too small, then, then the, the, the density in these boxes will change radically as I move, because essentially the density, if I make it too small, will go from either zero or a very high density if I happen to catch one atom inside. But if I make this big enough, um, I should, it, it should turn out that the number of molecules in any such box, no matter where I locate it, no matter where I locate the center of it, is essentially the same. Okay? So, in that sense, the density, the position density is going to be uniform. And we also thought it's kind of obvious without argument. Tim, yeah. but let me just, yeah. we're, we're, the way we're defining, when we're deriving properties of equilibrium here, or arguing for properties of equilibrium. Yeah. What we're understanding to define equilibrium is the state that doesn't evolve. The state where the, where, where the thermodynamic, yeah, where the thermodynamic parameters, macroscopic thermodynamic parameters right. are stationary. Right. Okay. So the idea is, you know, you put the gas in the box however you like. It, there could be all kinds of temperature fluctuations. There could be all kinds of pressure fluctuations. Density fluctuations. You know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but wait until that all settles down and those macroscopic parameters become stationary. That's just what I mean by that. And, and at this point, the, the argument that, that the way they're going to settle down is, say, with the density fairly uniform, is just to appeal to our intuition. Yeah, this is not, this, this, this is just appealing to an intuition, I mean, appeal to another intuition. It'll turn out these aren't important. Once we're done, I mean, this is a nice simplifying assumption for the thing we're going to calculate. And once we're done, we're going to be in a position to see if it isn't 
and we can, we'll, we'll see just as what we're going to do is essentially give an argument to, for what the velocity distribution ought to evolve to. We, you can see how you could give similar arguments if you start in a, in a case where this is not uniformly distributed, what that ought to evolve to. I mean, all of this, all of these other things would be handled by the same tools. But we're going to do the tools in this very simple case where we're just taking for granted that this is a, a uniform distribution of the particles and that the velocities are distributed isotropically so that the, the, the way the velocities are distributed in the x direction is the same as in the y direction, the same as in the z direction, or any other direction I want to pick. And the argument again for that is just a kind of intuition that there's a, an isotropy, there's a kind of symmetry with respect to all directions in the box of gas. So how could it be that if it settles down to anything, it, you know, how could it not settle down to something that was also had that symmetry? But if you're worried about those, you're going to see how to fancify the argument that we're going to give and derive that. What there wasn't was any intuitive notion. If you ask me, okay, that's how I think the positions ought to be distributed, that's how I think the velocities ought to be distributed in, in the directionally, but what's the actual distribution of velocities, right? How many of these particles are going to be going relatively fast and how many relatively slow and so on. Right? There's just no way you could look at that and say immediately it seems to me it ought to be x. And what we said last time was that Maxwell gives an argument in 1860 that gives you the velocity distribution essentially a v squared e to the minus oh sorry e to the minus b v squared dv for the speeds, which means if I want to know how many of these, essentially how many of the particles are in a, a, a little region of velocity, of speed space between a given speed and a, you know, I, I obviously can't ask how many are at some exact speed, the answer will probably be zero. Right? So in order for this to make any sense, I have to be looking at little slices of speed space. So pick a speed and pick a little unit and ask between v and v plus dv, um, what proportion have that speed? And this is the thing that's supposed to give it to you. And we saw the, the argument Maxwell gave for that was a structural or symmetry argument that he was demanding that the speeds in different directions all be independently distributed. So knowing the x velocity of a particle gives me no information about its y or z velocities that I didn't already have, okay? We also said, uh, well, Maxwell himself later says this argument is precarious. Why? Because why expect them to have that nice independence thing? Now, let me just say one more word here when you're reading the literature. One might say something like this. You might say, well, I don't know. I kind of expect things at equilibrium to be randomly distributed. And then you could say words like, and if the velocities are randomly distributed, then, then the velocities in all these different directions ought to be independent of one another. That's somehow supposed to follow from the notion of randomness. Now, the, the thing I want to warn you about here is that the notion of randomness, of course, just the word randomness buys you nothing. And I'm going to illustrate that by the mistake I made that I can now correct at the end of last time. So I said, last time I said, well, 
Suppose we thought to get this distribution of, of speeds, we thought about doling out energy at random in the sense of taking the total amount of energy that's going to go into the kinetic energy of these particles, dividing them into little units, and handing them out, handing the units out at random where each particle is equally likely to get any unit. Um, and I said, I think that would give you the same distribution. And David said, yeah, you know, I could. It doesn't. And Shelley, I, I thought I asked Shelley, and he said yes, but then, I, then he said no. And then he pointed out quite correctly what you would expect there would be a binomial distribution, right? From the, from the procedure I just gave you should give you a binomial distribution. This isn't a binomial distribution, so you can see it's not. It may be that for all practical purposes they're close enough, but it actually won't give you the right answer. So this is just to illustrate, you can't just wave your hand at the word random and get anything mathematical out of it, right? You have to be more precise than that. Okay. So why, first of all, we have two questions. Why should this be the equilibrium distribution? And a second, more important question, which is, why, if I start out of equilibrium, should it tend to evolve to this distribution? And what I said was that, that this kind of thing, the, the, what I think of as the rigorous argument, the, a rigorous kind of argument, or um, a really illuminating argument, is the one that has the character of what I call dynamics, right, dynamics plus, where the dynamics is the microdynamics of these particles, which we uh, assume to be given and is exact, and as we remarked in the beginning, in the cases we look at, time reversible, plus is whatever else has to go in this derivation to get me the result I want. And our conceptual right antenna are up in a way that, quite honestly, they weren't for Maxwell and Boltzmann when they wrote this stuff. Our conceptual antenna are up saying, ah, but we're trying to, if, if I can derive that if I start out of equilibrium, that my system will evolve to this distribution, that claim is time asymmetric. Because evolve two seems to tell me things are going to go in a certain direction of time. Or in any case, it's, it's it, you know, it, it would, the law we're trying to recover these laws of thermodynamics with time asymmetric, and our worry was if the dynamics is time symmetric, then the plus whatever it is, that better have an asymmetry in it. And we want to understand what it is and where it comes from and why we should believe it. Okay. So, what I want to do is do enough of this in enough detail that everybody can see what's going on. I don't want to get bogged down in too much mathematics, but I'm going to do it in a little bit different way than Maxwell and, uh, to begin with, than Maxwell and Boltzmann do. I want to do a really simple case. The simple case is, is, uh, hard spheres. So the question is, how are we going to, we need a dynamics. We need a dynamics for our particles. And that means we need an actual physical model of how they interact. Our assumption is that this is a relatively dilute gas, meaning that most of the time, any given particle is just traveling straight in a nice inertial trajectory. And 
from time to time, but relatively infrequently measured against when it's just in free motion, particles interact. And it's sufficiently dilute that when they interact, there are only ever two particles involved in the interaction. Right? You're never going to get sort of three particles coming together and colliding all at the same time. That's going to give you further complications. We're also going to assume, in this model, the first model, and then, we'll, then I'll do something that's close to that, that's really what Maxwell and Boltzmann do, that, that our particles are hard. So you're like billiard ball. So it's a really billiard ball model. We're not going to worry about the ball spinning, which is a question that came up before, because if they spin, if these really are billiard balls and they start to spin around an axis, well, one thing that does is that spinning eats up energy. So some of the energy, kinetic energy of motion, can get transformed into rotational energy. We're just going to assume they don't, so that all of their energy is kinetic energy. Each of these has the same mass m. The kinetic energy is one-half mv squared. Okay. And what they can do is collide and they're completely elastic, bounce off each other with no, you know, no loss of energy. Now, what do we need to understand? We need to understand what these collisions will do. What we ultimately want to understand is if we start with a certain distribution of velocities, when the particles collide, that distribution will change, right? Because you have certain incoming velocities and certain outgoing velocities, and they'll be different. Things will be going maybe different speeds in different directions. And so, this distribution of, of speeds will change as a result of these collisions. Well, how do we understand what the collisions will do? In the case of hard spheres, it's really easy. So that's why I want to just to do this case, because I can actually Without, no, they're not doing calculations, but you can sort of see it. It connects up with, uh, with, with things that Maxwell says if you read his paper. So suppose, what's the situation? Suppose I have a one particle moving this way with velocity v1. And now, these are not just speeds. These are really velocities. They have their directions attached to them. And a second particle moving here with velocity v2, and each of these is starting out somewhere, and suppose they bang into each other, what's going to happen? Okay. Now, there's all sorts of different ways to calculate this, and they often involve changing your frame of reference to make the calculation easy. And again, I just want to walk through a few baby steps of this because if you're ever trying to read this stuff, you ought to get used to this. So, for example, here, I, I have any two arbitrary velocities, and I want to know, given their positions, given their exact positions, I have v1, v2 coming in. If they collide, that guy, say, is going out at some v1 prime, and this guy is coming out of collision at some v2 prime. And I want to know what those are. Right? Well, how do I figure that out? Well, the first simple change to make that you can see is something you can do and then undo at will is you notice for any, any pair of particles like this, there's going to be a center of mass frame of reference. 
where the center of mass of these two particles is at rest. And in the center, because in the center of mass frame, the total momentum is zero. Right? That's why the center of mass is at rest. These are all uh, equal, equal masses. So if I go into that frame, so let me just redraw this whole picture in the center of mass frame. In the center of mass frame, it means particle V1 is, say, going this direction with velocity V1. And for particle V2, well, yeah, let me, I, let me call it V. Uh, let me change it to W, because this is now relative to the center of mass frame. And this one's going this direction with negative W1, right? They're going in equal and opposite directions. This is the center of mass of the whole system, right? Center of mass of the whole, of the pair of particles, the, the system being just this pair of particles, okay? So the total, the total momentum here is zero, because this is negative that, right? Again, this is important that these are directed. And the center of mass won't change, because you have no external forces on this thing. Okay? And so that means they're going to come in, and they're going to go out also. Let's call, call the outward one, you know, they'll be W prime. And say the outward one's going out. It means the other one has to be going out at the negative of that, again, to keep the momentum zero. So they're going to come in like that. They're going to do something. Maybe they'll miss. Maybe they'll just go right through. They're going to do something. They're going to come out. Well, what's going to determine that? What's going to determine the function from input to output? Obviously, first of all, whether they hit at all. And if they hit, how they hit. So let's suppose these guys collide. I mean, this guy has a radius r. This guy has a radius r. In this picture, they're moving like that. If I project this guy's center of mass out, that's where he's going to go if, if he doesn't hit anything. And if I project this guy's center of mass out, that's where he's going to go if he doesn't hit anything. And now the obvious point is, they're going to collide just in case this distance right, is less than 2 right? If the distance between their center of masses is less than 2R, then they can't keep going. They're going to hit. How are they going to hit? Well, it's going to depend on exactly how far apart they are. If they're right on line with each other, you know what's going to happen. They're going to go bang and then just go back out. And if they're off line with each other, they're going to hit. They're going to collide something like this. Sorry, this would be the same size. They're going to collide, say, something like that, and then be scattered. How are they going to be scattered? Well, again, this is now, the reason I'm doing this is it's very simple to see how they're going to be scattered. If they hit like this, the only force, because this, this force occurs only at the moment of collision, and the force has to be connecting the two centers of mass, it's going to be as if each one hit a wall at that angle. And we know what happens when you hit a wall at that angle, you bounce off at equal angles. Okay? So this guy's coming in, let's call that angle theta. He's going to come out of this, reflect it off where that's theta. Okay? So that's just elastic collision off the wall. And 
it's clear that you can calculate, now I'm not going to bother to do it, you can calculate what the state is a function of how far apart these guys are. Because that just determines essentially their, their positions of closest approach in this picture are when they collide. And the line that connects their nearest positions to each other is called the apses of their trajectory. And you can see what's going to happen is this guy's going to go until he collides and then he's going to careen off here. This guy's going to go until he collides and then he's going to careen off that way. Okay? And what's going to happen to these trajectories is that they'll be rotated through two theta. Because that's theta and this is theta. Let me just write symmetry. And so the reason why I went through that is that is if you were reading Maxwell, um, when he's talking about his collisions, he also talks about, well, the things will be rotated through two theta. I don't need to find it. They'll be rotated through two theta. Okay? Now, what determines the value of theta is, is, is this distance, and this distance is called the impact parameter. Okay? So if the impact parameter in this model is greater than 2R, then you have no collision. And for any number less than 2R, I can tell you what the outgoing velocities will be. And then I can transform back from the center of mass to my original frame. And now I can generally tell you if there are V1, V2 coming in, what the outgoing guys will be, given the impact parameter. Is everybody OK with this? All right, that's hard spheres. Maxwell didn't deal with hard spheres. What did he deal with? He, he dealt with centers of force. So get rid of this, get rid of this hard sphere. So then we now don't even have to worry about it rotating. It can't rotate. We have a center of force, and it's again a kind of short-range force. So the idea is it's maybe a one over r squared force when they're far away from each other. They don't feel it to any appreciable extent, and they just travel straight. And then when they get close enough. They repel each other, but the picture's going to be basically the same. There'll be an asymptotic, <coughs> an asymptotic straight line motion of this one coming in, an asymptotic straight line motion of this one coming in. The trajectory will now, instead of being this sort of sharp corner, it'll do something like that and curve. This guy will come in and curve. There'll be an outgoing asymptotic straight line. The axis will be the line that connects their approach is approach, and then you measure this angle theta relative to the abscess. And that gives you, and, and how, how much they'll be deflected is again going to be a function of essentially this impact parameter, which is how far apart these two approaching lines were to each other. Okay? Everybody more or less happy about that. So now, by this analysis, I now know given the incoming velocities and their, the relative positions of the, of the incoming trajectories, the dynamics tells me what the outgoing velocities will be. In order to figure out how this quantity will change in time, because it only changes due to these impacts. 
What I now need to know is, in a given unit of time, how many impacts of, of each kind will there be? By each kind, I mean, for example, how many impacts where particle 1 has velocity v1, particle 2 has velocity v2, the impact parameter between them is a certain given amount, and the angles between them are a certain given amount. Okay? If I have the, the, with the dynamics alone, so what I've done so far is there's no plus. What the dynamics alone tells me is how a certain collection of such interactions will change the distribution of velocities. What I now need to know is in a unit time, how many impacts of each kind are there going to be? Okay? So, now we're going to get into, into the nitty-gritty, where, where, the, where the big hypothesis comes. Actually, before I start, did anybody find this show? Did anybody feel like it? Has anybody been looking for this thing? I've been asking for Desperately seeking it. Desperately seeking it. Anybody find it? Because we're about to find it. Okay, we're about to find it. Okay, so let me set up a simple situation. This is just, I'm just going to follow exactly what Maxwell does in his. So suppose I have an incoming, all right, so the incoming particles have velocities v1, and again, these are velocities, not speeds. This, this tells you not only how fast they're going, but in exactly which direction they're going. They have v1, v2. Uh, I take, I, I want to have a sense of how many collisions and of what kind there are going to be between particles like this and particles like this. And again, when I say particles like this, of course, there are probably zero particles that have exactly this velocity. So again, you have to think that I have a certain collection of particles, a certain actual number of particles whose velocity is between v1 and v, you know, v1 plus dv, and this is to v2 and v2 plus dv. So I have a little, a little velocity wedge that I'm looking at. Okay. So I, what do I know about this particle? Well, it's got Particle 1 is velocity v1. What do I know about this particle? It has v2. It's somewhere. I mean, I shouldn't be putting it in there. This one's somewhere. All I know is there. Each one's somewhere with those things. How do I calculate how many collisions and at what time? Well, I'm going to do another trick. This is now just to follow what Maxwell does. I'm not going to go into the, in, in, into the center of frame, the center of mass frame, which made it easy to calculate how the scattering will occur. I'm going to go into the rest frame of this, of V1. Okay? So I'm going to go into a frame where initially particle 1 is at rest. So it's just sitting here. And in that frame, particle 2 has the relative velocity, right, V1 minus V2. So that's some well-defined velocity. This is vector, vector addition. So now, essentially, I'm saying I have a particle here at rest. I have a whole bunch of particles that are approaching it 
right, on parallel tracks, because I now I, I now have in my dash there's a certain collection of particles, all of which have this this velocity, this relative velocity. So you think of this swarm. Right? I'm, I'm picking out from all the particles in the gas the swarm of them that are moving this way with respect to this guy. Okay? What are the conditions for one of these to interact with him in a certain way? Okay, well, you've got this incoming velocity draw draw the plane that's at right angles that's, that's, you know, to which this is orthogonal, right? So all this incoming velocity is now at right angles. And now all of these, if, if nothing interferes with these particles, you can now figure out where they would, right, just follow it through, where they're going to hit this plane. Okay? And here's my target particle. And now I want to know, what's the likelihood that one of these particles comes, that the impact parameter of this particle is between B and, again, add a little dB. So B is a, is, is a distance here. Because remember, how this scattering occurs depends on the impact parameter. And at a certain angle. So you can imagine on this plane, there's a whole circle of target Areas that are distance b away, or between between b and b plus db, and I also want to look at some particular angle. Let's let's say there's a reference here, theta. Okay, so you take this little patch. If one of these incoming particles would hit that patch then my pure dynamic argument will tell me after that interaction, this particle will say be deflected that way, this guy will recoil in some other direction, I'll now have my final two velocities. And that's, that, that's just transforming what I did before in the center of frame mass now to this frame, and you can see all the, you know, you, you've calculated all that from the pure dynamics. Okay, everybody happy? Alright, so what question am I asking? I'm asking, how many collisions of this kind are there going to be? Let me first ask just about this single particle. Well, what do you mean how many are going to be? In some given time. So I've got some time, dt. And this is not, when I write this d, this is not a, this, I mean, maybe if you, well, it's not a differential time. This is, you know, a microsecond, an actual finite quantity of time. Okay? Well, what's the condition that in the next amount of time dt, one of these particles would hit in this little area? Okay. Well, they're coming in this way. Let's draw, and now I'll just be repeating. If you read Maxwell, this is almost word for word what he says to do. Draw a line, this line whose length is v dt, where v, v this called this v, right? This, the relative velocity is v. Okay? 
So that means this is the this is the distance in this frame of reference, in the rest frame of this particle. This is the distance that each one of these particles will travel in DT. So that's perpendicular to the plane. It's perpendicular to the plane. Okay? Build out a cylinder, or actually a double cylinder, whose inner radius is B and whose outer radius is B plus DB, this little variation in the impact parameter. So now I have, oh God, that doesn't look good at all, but my, my, let me, let me try to draw this in a way that's a little bit more, I'm not a good artist, but you'll get the idea. Okay, so I'm going to do this. This thing is VDT. I now have a double cylinder. Okay? Sorry, is V the V1 minus V2? Yes, V is V1 minus V2. This V is this. It's the relative speed. The relative velocity. Okay? I, I now have this double cylinder. The inner, the inner cylinder part is B, and it goes out to, to B plus DB. So the, the, the thickness of this is D, the thing I'm calling DB. And I want to know, again, I have this little patch here, and that patch is characterized also by call this theta and call this d theta. Maxwell actually calls it phi. It's phi, phi. I think he calls it phi. D phi. So I've got a little wedge. Again, a finite angle d phi. I want to know how many particles in this time would impact on that little piece. And what's obvious is that in order to impact on that little piece, a particle would have to start at the beginning of this time somewhere in this region, the region that's bounded by the inner cylinder below, the upper cylinder above, this side of the wedge on that side, that side of the wedge on that side, and its length is VDT. So if I sort of, right, that's the region of space. that one of these particles has to start out in in order to suffer a collision of this kind with this particle in this time. Is that clear? So let me just stop here. Is that clear? So if you look at, at, at Maxwell's paper, which I, I, I can't remember. One of these papers is, is not copied from the book, so it's not the same pagination. But you'll actually find exactly this quantity. Uh, I think it's on page 38 here, but I, it's it's right before. It's it's it, if you find the section, it's on the mutual action of two systems of moving molecules. You'll find the following thing written in Maxwell. He's got a v. That's this relative velocity, capital V. He's got a DB, he's got a, yeah, it's phi. D phi, DT, oh, uh, there's a B, there's a, sorry, a B out front. DB, DB, D phi, DT, that's it. 
That is the volume, the spatial volume of that patch. Page 58 in ours. Okay, on page 58. Why, well, where did this extra B come from? In case, you know, for those of you keeping score at home. Again, I don't know how much detail you want to go into. It's not very hard to follow this. Where did this extra B come from? Well, you've got this thing. You're, 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 you're treating, even though the cross-section of this, if I look at it straight on, is a kind of funny trapezoidal thing that has a curve here and a curve here and two slightly angled edges. You're basically treating it as if it were a rectangle. Okay, because the idea is that this curvature, if you make, if you make D, D5, the little angle sufficiently small, these edges will be essentially parallel. And this, these lines, even though they're curves, will be essentially straight. Okay? And this side of it is DB, right? The little change in B. And this side of it, remember this angle is D5, this side is BD5, right? Because the size of that is just the difference in the angle multiplied by the radius. Right, so that's why this B shows up here. So that's the cross-section of this thing, and its length this way is VDT. Yes? Now, how likely is it, and now here's the key, we want to know how many collisions, or let's, let's put it this way, we, what we wanted to know really is how many collisions are there going to be of this kind, of particles with velocity v1 colliding with particles with velocity of v2 at this impact parameter and at that angle. So for, we, we've got actually a whole bunch of particles with velocity v1, and in a rest frame they're all essentially a mutual rest. So think of all the v's as target particles. Okay? The number of them is given. That's N1. The number of particles with this velocity. For each, each one of these particles has attached to it, you can think, its own little target regions. Okay? Every single one of them, I can do exactly the same construction, build this thing, and I'll find the little target region that one of the V2 particles has to be in in order to collide with it in that given period of time. And I've calculated the volume of each of these each of these regions, right? We can think of these as the critical regions. That volume is going to be some percentage of the total volume in the box. Okay? And I've calculated, I can now calculate what that percentage is. Right. Suppose it's, this would be way too large for what we're doing, but suppose it's a million, right? So suppose that of the total volume of the box, right, one millionth of it is taken up by these regions. Again, I haven't done anything now that's gone beyond dynamics. Right? We're still in the, in, the, in the regime of what follows strictly without any other assumption from the dynamics. 
So what can what, what determined then one and this from the dynamics and one is and one is just given. That's just it's given to me. The initial state tells me it's given by this. Remember what I'm doing is I'm starting with a distribution, a velocity distribution. I'm starting with a velocity distribution, arbitrary velocity distribution. The velocity distribution tells me. Okay. A certain percentage of your molecules have this velocity. A certain percentage of your molecules have that velocity. If I have a total number of molecules, total so, 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 so that's where I get a little confused that you say it's purely on the dynamics because that seems to me to be a, a statistical statement about n, and that seems that you've already imported some probabilistic language. No, well, that's no, that's built into well, that's built into this characterization. What, what, is, what I'm doing is characterizing the initial state in these terms. But, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, well, I'm, I'm more or less repeating what you're saying. Look, here, the, the, the problem that we're, the calculation that we're trying to do is, given that the initial velocity distribution is such and such, which way is it likely to evolve? Okay. So, 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 the, the, now, this is, it's in, it's in answering that question that thus far only the dynamics has been appealed to. So I but the structure of the question includes the initial velocity distribution. Right. So, 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 but would it be fair for me to say, look, let me just take n one as given, and not even worry where it comes from, and do this calculation. No, what, no, what, and then, you know, I could ask separately a question of, you know, this calculation also works. Except so if you did it that way, it wouldn't be clear why this is an interesting, why this is an interesting calculation to do. The deal is, we want to, you know, what what Maxwell wants to show, what Tim wants to show, is that is that given that you start out with any distribution other than this one, it's going to evolve towards this one. Right. Okay. So where so so the interesting thing to start out with isn't just the number n one; it's a velocity distribution other than this one. Okay. Because then what we want to do is show that it's going to evolve towards this one. N1 is part of what follows from the velocity distribution. Okay. And what Tim is saying is that so far in doing the calculation we've done, and this isn't going to persist, of course, right. but so far nothing has been appealed to but the dynamics. To say N1 is something outside of the dynamics um, isn't, isn't the right way to talk. N1 is part of the, N1 is part of the problem that we set ourselves right. to solve in the first place. Right. My original problem was give me an arbitrary distribution. Right. Tell me how it's going to evolve. Right. So the initial distribution is, of course, arbitrary. It's whatever. Okay, that's what I was missing. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Fine. It's whatever you want. Okay. Right. Fine. Right. right. Because this is what we want to understand. We want to understand, look, I, I take the box of gas. I started off very far from this. How? Who knows how? Right? No, the, the idea is, I, 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 I don't, don't care about. Right? Right. right? right? Start off however the hell you like. Right. Okay. What I want to understand is why if I wait a while, it will reliably settle down to this. Right. Okay? So N1 comes from that arbitrary. Yes. Yeah. N1, I'm sorry, I, thought, yeah. I heard you say N1 comes from this distribution. It's going to this distribution. Oh, no, okay. I didn't mean, I, I, so I'm using the right set of qualities. Okay. Yes, right. <laughs> I, I, don't, I now mean F, not to be exactly yeah, the yeah, I F, F is now F of T. Right, I was being told. Okay, right, right. so this is the distribution, and it can change with time. Right. And I'm going to put arbitrarily what I want in at time T zero. And what I want to ask is, how will that evolve as a function of time? Okay? And what I'm hoping to show is that as t goes to infinity, it goes to, that, yeah. it goes to the equilibrium distribution. 
Is that, are we happy now? Yeah, yeah, you erased the part that was making Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> yeah, so F, so, right, F, F generally just means whatever the distribution is. This is also a little bit wrong. The F I'm using here is actually a velocity distribution rather than a speed distribution. Um, the, 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 the thing that, that Boltzmann uses is an energy distribution, which is a little different as well, but if, if, if you assume, I mean, the reason why, again, this is just details for anybody who's dotting I's and crossing T's. The reason why Maxwell, the reason why Boltzmann can do it just with an energy distribution is he's assuming isotropy. So he's assuming that the directional stuff is, he knows how that's distributed in a certain way. And so if you know the speed distribution, if you know the energy distribution, you know the speed distribution, and if it's isotropic, then you know everything. Okay. But if, if, it, if it starts off non-isotropic, of course, similarly, you write the show, if it starts off non-isotropic, it will tend to evolve to being isotropic. And if it starts, if the, if the initial density starts off non-uniform, you write the show, it will tend to evolve to uniformity. Okay. So now we're at the critical point. Anybody who was looking for, was trying to find the Stoßsaal-Ansatz, uh, it's on, well, you told me the page. What was the page you just had? Page 58. It's page 38 for me. Here it is. And when I say here it is, uh, well, I'll show you in a minute, because I'm finding it, you, you, you might be here, Stoßsaal-Ansatz, okay, that's a German phrase. You're going to expect you're going to find it in Boltzmann, right? We're not. We're finding it right now in Maxwell. The actual assumption, clearly stated. So he, he has now just said, and I will read to you, and you should understand, he says, then the volume included between the four planes, which is this plane, this plane, that plane, and that, that plane, the four planes and the two cylindric surfaces, which is that surface and that surface, so that's the volume I've just indicated here, will be the thing I just wrote. V, B, D, B, D, phi, D, T. Right, that's the volume. Then he says, if this volume includes one of the molecules M2, M2 are the, are the on-rushing, right, the on-rushing molecules, all of this velocity. If this volume includes one of the molecules M2, then during the time dt, there will be an encounter between M1 and M2 in which, uh, in which B is between B and B plus dB and phi is between phi and phi plus d phi. Now, here's the ansatz. It's the next sentence. And you have to, you know, because you see, it looks like a derivation. It's like a mathematical derivation. Since there are dn1 molecules similar to m1, and dn2 similar to m2 in unit volume, the whole number of encounters of the given kind between the two systems will be, you just take this, you multiply times dn1, dn2. This number is supposed to be the number of collisions of the given time. That's the actual collision number. So what did he do? He took this volume, and this is really expressed, I mean, you sort of normalize things, so this is really expressed as a percentage of the total volume. So again, this might come out to be a million multiplied by the number of particles N1, that gave him, again, this is, this is the volume for a single particle. He multiplies by Dn1. That gave you the total, right, add up all these little target regions. 
and he just multiplied that by the number of onrushing gods. That's the onzots. What does it mean? It says something like this. If the totality of these critical regions is one millionth of the total volume, then one millionth of the onrushing particles will suffer these collisions. Okay? That is not an analytic truth. Right? Well, and more importantly, it's not a dynamical... It's also not a dynamic. This is, this is the plus. The plus appears right there when he says the number of collisions, the number of actual collisions will be, and again, you'd say this is kind of approximate, right, you know, there's little epsilonics in here. But essentially, if, if the target area takes up a millionth of the total volume, then a millionth of the oncoming guys will suffer collisions. That doesn't need to be true, right? I could take my DN2 onrushing particles and tie them all up in the critical region, so they all collide. Or I could take them and distribute them carefully outside the critical, all the critical regions, so there are zero collisions. Okay? So it does not follow, as a matter of mathematics or logic or anything else, that this will actually give me a good calculation of the number of collisions. Right. But why believe it? Okay, so why believe it? Now, notice, Maxwell, when he writes it, does not, it, there were no red flags that went up. That he said, here, I, all of a sudden, I'm doing something that's going beyond the dynamics. Let's be careful. Let's be, you know, let's signal that this is where the, it doesn't. He just, you know, he just goes on. He says, since, right? The entire argument is since. <laughs> well, okay. Maybe I'm, maybe you think I'm being a little bit, a little bit hard on Maxwell. After all, as we say, we call it the Stoßsalonsatz. Clearly, that had to come from Boltzmann. No doubt, Boltzmann must have been much more careful about all this. Okay? So where does this ansatz occur in Boltzmann, in the, in the thermal equilibrium of gas molecules? Surely he must have been a little more. Well, on, now this is the one you have copied. It's on page 96. Here's what Boltzmann, here's where the critical assumption comes in Boltzmann's derivation. The following sentence. Since this calculation, although tedious, is not, is not at all difficult and has no special interest, and the result is so simple that one might almost say it's obvious, I'll simply state the result. Okay? I mean, Maxwell at least walked you through the argument, rigorously got you to the calculation of this volume, and then said, this percentage of collisions will be given by the percentage of, of, of total volume. Boltzmann doesn't even do the calculation. Right? He just says it's obvious. Well, what's I mean, so let's just think about what's supposed to be obvious. Here's the sort of thing that's built in, was built into this equation. This says that the number of collisions 
will vary linearly, directly, with the number of particles. So it says, well, if there were twice as many of these onrushing particles, there would be twice as many collisions. Right? What could be more obvious? And the, the guys, there are guys who want to give you this number, the collision number, and again, they'll say, that the, the argument will just be, well, clearly, I need a dn here. I, I, need, I need this to, to, to vary directly with dns. If I double the number of targets, I'm going to double the number of collisions. If I double the number of attackers, I'm going to double the number of collisions. This has to just be some linear function. Okay? But the fact is, it doesn't have to be a linear function. Let me make one more comment. Because if you're reading through the material, and I have to say especially the philosophical material, it can be a mess. Um, I won't name names, but it can be a mess. And let me just give you one more thing to be careful of. So, F of B and T. This is the number, the, the percentage of particles with velocity v at time t. Okay? So I can have f of v1. That's how many particles at time t have velocity v1. I can have this thing v2. This is a function, right? It's a function. I can put anything I want into that. That's the number of particles or the percentage of particles at time t that have velocity v2. Some people will write the following thing. They'll write f of v1, v2, t. What is that? Okay? Well, some, it, it can mean different things. The obvious thing it means, the obvious thing if you just look at that, you say, well, look, this is the number of particles with velocity v1 at t. This is the number of particles or percentage of particles with velocity v2 at t. This is the percentage of pairs of particles where one of them has V1 and the other one has V2 at T. Okay? If that's what this means, it just follows mathematically from these. Okay? If you know the distribution of these and the distribution of these, it just follows automatically what the distribution of pairs is. The problem is, and sometimes I'll actually say that's what this is, but then what they use it for is this. This is the number of collisions. This is not the number of particles with this pair of velocities. This is the number of collisions between pairs of particles with these velocities. This does not follow mathematically from this. Okay? And again, if you get confused about just what the F is, is it counting collisions? Or is it counting simply pairs? You're going to get into a total mess. And lots of people have gotten into more or less total messes if you try and read their papers. Tim, maybe it's just worth being perfectly concrete about the sense in which this doesn't follow from this. The point is that the counterexample you imagine is where there are, there are these numbers of particles with these velocities, but they're, li they're all lined up in such a way as to miss. Okay, or they're all lined up in such a way as to collide. Okay, all of that is perfectly consistent with all these numbers being what they are. Okay, so the the essence of every now once 
Notice what happens. Suppose I get this part. Now, Maxwell also gets yeah, this part. Can I interrupt yeah. just one second to pick up one there? Yeah. Bit. So, what you said earlier is it doesn't follow analytically that that relationship with N1 and N2 right. is linear. I think what you just said is it doesn't follow that the relationship is there at all, that, that you that the number of collisions in that volume... Yes, so I mean, that, that those, numbers, those numbers could be anything right. so with not the number of collisions exactly. ranging between zero and the total number. But it doesn't have to depend on No, it doesn't have to depend on it at all. That's right. 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 That's right. <coughs> right. Okay. Right. And here, not only a dependence, but a specific mathematical form of the dependence is being taken for granted. Okay. So that's the ansatz. And the ansatz seems so obvious to Maxwell and so obvious to Boltzmann that they basically wrote it down without comment and probably without stopping a second to think about it. Okay? But that, that, right, the idea that the number of collisions will have this form, that is the thing that takes us from the regime of the time reversible dynamics to the regime of the non-time reversible dynamics of F, of this distribution function. Now, let's just see what we can, let's accept this and see what we can parlay it into. It's again, again worthwhile to see how powerful this is. So, uh, David's been talking a lot about standard thermodynamics and focusing on some very general thermodynamic principles like the principle that entropy always goes up or you, you can't, you know, construct various kinds of machines and so on like that. This gadget gives me very, very precise, detailed information. Why? Well, this will tell me, given any distribution of velocities at, a, at T, I now know exactly how many collisions of what kind will happen between t and t plus dt, right? How many collisions will happen in the next half second of what kind? I know from the dynamics the way each one of those collisions changes the velocity profile, right? It takes each collision will take a pair of particles in v1, v2 as input and give me outgoing ones in v1 prime, v2 prime. Okay? So it will tell me how many of my original particles with V1, if I now integrate over all the possible collisions, I can calculate how many of the V1s will have been scattered off in this direction, how many of them will have been scattered off in that direction, and I can also calculate how many other particles will have been scattered into this velocity from some other incoming pair. Which means I can now calculate how the distribution of each velocity changes with time. Not and literally how how fast it happens. So this is one of the things I'm going to get out of this is relaxation times. So I'm going to get something much more specific than just saying if you start a gas off and it's not in the equilibrium distribution, then it will eventually end up there. I'll be able to tell you in a minute this is where it'll be. Okay? In two minutes this is where it'll be. That's much more powerful, precise information, right, than you get out of this very general, some very general things. Now, 
What about, how does this help us with the equilibrium distribution? Well, now we justify, we can justify the equilibrium distribution in an entirely new way. So our original justification was precarious. It involved something about, you know, symmetries and so on. What we now know, we now have an equation for the change of this with time. Okay? So once I do, and there's a, there's a, a longer equation that's written out in various ways, and I won't even bother to write that. It has to do with, you know, this would be, for example, the distribution of particles. How many particles have velocity? Well, I don't, then I don't need that. This is how many particles have velocity v1 at some time. What this new equation tells me is how, how this thing changes with time. Okay? So it gives me the dynamics of this, of this distribution. And then I can ask the question, okay, what does the distribution look like where that, where it's stationary? Like what f can I plug into this equation? Or maybe there are several or whatever, but what f can I plug into this equation such that the df dt is zero? That's going to be a stationary distribution. Now it's a matter of plugging in this guy we had before, right, the velocity distribution with the appropriate a's and b's, mm -hmm. e to the minus b squared, right, plug this guy in and now you can prove it's stationary. So that's proving it's the equilibrium. If I define equilibrium with stationarity, I can prove that. It raises some other questions. You might ask, well, gee, maybe there's some others. It's easy to prove that this is stationary by just plugging it in and seeing. Now you can ask a, a harder question. Is there any other one that has the same feature? Is there any other distribution that's going to be stationary? The argument that there isn't is what Boltzmann gives here in what's called the H-theorem. Okay? So what the H-theorem is going to tell you is that if the distribution isn't this, <coughs> Right? If it's anything other than this, and the distribution is changing by this equation, it's not going to be stable, right? And in fact, it will evolve to this. Right? It'll be moving toward it in a well-defined sense of getting closer to. It'll be constantly getting closer to this. So is there a slight difference between Boltzmann's approach? I mean, he looks like he's looks like he's doing a limiting distribution, whereas this one is sort of saying if you're actually in that distribution, it doesn't change. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, there's, no, there's two there's two claims here. You know, the derivative will be zero if you're in this distribution, and it'll be non-zero elsewhere. Okay, and it'll be pointing, as it were, that it'll be pointing in the direction of this distribution. By which you mean the derivative of the distribution at any time minus the equilibrium distribution will be negative. Right. The time derivative of that will be negative. Right. But in Boltzmann's way, does it actually? Get to that point, or is it just kind of? No, this is going to. I mean, the dynamics will be a limit. It'll be a limit. Yeah, it'll be it, the limit is t goes to infinity, right? Right. Okay. Which is, you know, rigorously what you expect in any case. So imagine, right. imagine right. You, you just take two boxes at different temperatures and bring them together, and you ask, well, 
rigorously how long will it take for them to come to equal, literal equilibrium, identity of temperatures. By any of the normal equations, the answer is forever. But they will very quickly get within epsilon for, you know, for macroscopic epsilon. And not only that, I mean, as Tim emphasized, the fact that you only get to the limit at infinity shouldn't be confused with the claim, which is false, that these won't give you that these won't give, that these kinds of calculations won't give you detailed information in finite time right. about how quickly the approach takes. But what I was wondering is that that sort of dichotomy of sort of a limiting distribution in one case and showing that if you're in that distribution, the derivative is zero. You know, if you were magically starting in that distribution, yes. then you know the derivative is zero, so you should never get away from That's it. That's right. But we don't have the reversal argument. Kind of like the the dome where you can say that you know you start off magically at that one point, and then you know sort of it says that right. I mean, um, I said that very clumsily. I, 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 I mean, I'm not. But, that, but that's it's not a it's not a it's not an argument from exact microstates. It's right. a, it's a uh, well you can yeah no it's a, no, no so I mean that's well let, so so let's see how to put the difference the the the. Given the Stoszal ansatz, how do you pronounce it? Stoszal ansatz. Stoszal's division zal is number. Given the given given that ansatz, then then the derivative then this derivative at equilibrium is always going to be zero. That's different from saying given any microstate that satisfies the equilibrium distribution. Um, um, uh, the, uh, the the velocity distribution won't change with time. Okay. Um, the second statement is false. Okay. And the second statement is the second statement, and, and, and the second statement had better be false, or else there would be a paradox. Okay. Of the kind, look, if if I if I evolve towards this equilibrium. Um, I, if I reverse all the positions and velocities, I ought to get back out. That had better be true. Okay. Um, um, and if this, and if and if the if the vanishing of this derivative didn't depend on that ansatz, okay, if it just followed from the dynamics all by itself, then it, then there then there'd really be a contradiction there. Right. Right. Um, can I say? Can, can I want to? Um, I just want to register a vague. I don't know, a vague pedagogical discomfort, um, um, which is of the following form. I don't think Tim intended this, but it might have appeared as if something like the following. So, we say, look, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the density is a function of position of the gas in the box at equilibrium seems obvious, okay? Um, but the velocity distribution at equilibrium doesn't seem obvious. I take it at least a, a big part of the reason the first one seems obvious and the second one doesn't seem obvious is that, you know, there are gases, I don't know, like smoke or something like that, that you can actually see, okay? Um, that, is, that is, it's easy to visually inspect what the distribution in space is. So you just have lots of empirical experience you know, you take out a wall, 
you, you judge the density by the darkness of the color or something like that, and you see it spreading out and settling into this uniform distribution. It just happens to be the case that we don't have the same kind of easy visual grip on things like velocity distributions. And I take it it's for reasons like that that the velocity distribution that the thing settles into in equilibrium seems less obvious and, and immediately intuitive to us than the density distribution that things settle to, into in equilibrium. The difference in the obviousness of these two, which like I say, I take it is at least in large part just an empirical phenomenon. Um, might make it appear as if the task of explaining the velocity distribution is somehow more urgent than the task of explaining the position, you know, the density distribution, because the density distribution is obvious. And it seems to me that there's a deep sense in which exactly the opposite of that is true. Okay, um, um, that you know the density distribution first, first of all turns out to be much much more difficult to explain in a fairly rigorous way than than the fact that the velocity distribution comes out this way, and and in in <coughs> in getting the velocity distribution to come out this way, we're making assumptions that are related to the to the density distribution that is this Stoshalanzas. Okay. Um, so, so I mean, the reason this was going through is because we have a nice, clean argument for it, given certain assumptions that look innocent, okay? Part of the reason these assumptions look innocent is, is just because the, 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 density, the density distribution of the equilibrium <coughs> seems obvious to us. The reason it seems obvious to us is because of is because of empirical characteristics that the world happens to have and that our sense organs happen to have. We can take a look at a gas and, and see the density distribution that it settles into, not the velocity distribution that it settles into. So I don't know, I guess I just wanted to say that you shouldn't get the impression from this, it seems to me wrong indeed, it seems to me the opposite of what's true, that this makes the final velocity distribution more of a mystery or something that stands more in need of explanation than the final density distribution. Good. Right. Well, let me, I mean, I absolutely agree with that. The, the idea is to see the tools. Right. Once you see how this gadget works, right. it's, it, 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 you should be able to think through how it will work if I ask Although it. much more Suppose amazing. it's not. Right. We're, yeah. we're going to be at the yeah, I'll, much I'll, more I'll, say, I'm going to say a few words about it. I mean, I guess I'll quibble to one tiny thing, uh -huh. which is that, you know, the characterization of the equilibrium density, which is just that it's uniform, right. and, and of the velocities that they're isotropic, right. are easy to say. The idea that even if we sharpened up our eyesight, that you could look at something and read off it this function, right. Strikes me as you know. I, I don't think you can look at anything. Right. Well, that looks like b squared e to the minus b. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, but th th that's equivalent. I mean, the, if you were so, now you've got the idea of how this works. Now we can exactly talk about. Well, what if I started out without uniform density? Suppose I started out with a certain number of particles in the box, but they're much much, much denser on this side, you know, than on that side. And now, again, I have, I take little 
finite cubes of the appropriate size, and I can talk about the density in each cube centered. So now I have a, a function, which is a function uh, not just of time, but of position, right? So I have the velocity and the density. I mean, I guess I can, I don't know, the density well. As, as functions of both position, q, and t, right? And so I can say, well, gee, at a certain time, there's much more here. Now, the, the reason why, one reason why just mathematically it's going to get more, more complicated is easy to see. Let me just say that. When you're worried about changes in the velocity distribution, you only have to worry about collisions, because the only time they change is when they collide. When you're worried about changes in the density, that'll change even if there's no collisions, just because they're moving. So you get what are called streaming terms, right? So you have to keep track of, even if they don't collide, I had a bunch of particles here in different directions, after a while they're going to just have changed. Okay, but it's easy enough to see what those terms will look like mathematically if you say, well, if it doesn't collide and I have a bunch of, I have a distribution of particles here with different velocities, the ones that don't collide, where will they be? Well, it's just a matter of tracking, you know, over that time where that velocity will take it. And you have to add more terms, so the thing that's mathematically more. Is that a question? No, sorry. Could you, instead of working with velocities, just work with the sort of dif distances between particles? So try to redo the analysis. It's just changing the reference point as being, you know, the variable of concern being, because that's ultimately you want a distribution over the distances between them. Um, I mean, my initial, my, my initial, can, look, I, again, remember, what did I, had, I plugged into the dynamics, right? I got the scattering terms mm -hmm. by plugging into the dynamics. What I need to plug into the dynamics to get it to run are initial positions and velocities, or, you know. So I can't, if, if, the, if the information I have doesn't encode, even in a statistical way, velocity distributions and position distributions, then there's no way I'm going to be able to, 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 to bring the dynamics to bear. But our original puzzle was, the puzzle, one puzzle I raised on the first day was, look, this is a, this kind of thing, this distribution that tells me, oh, the density of particles at a certain point at a certain time is such and such, and the velocity distribution at that point at that time is such and such, is very rough, right, coarse-grained information. It doesn't tell me exactly where any individual particle is, right? It doesn't give me the exact phase point. The thing I would need to plug into the dynamics to run it for the whole system was the exact phase point. So the question was, how can I get this much simpler, easier to express, compressed information, statistical information, and use the dynamics on it, because it's not the right kind of thing to use the dynamics on, and get anything. And what we, you know, what we just walked through was the, the, the way that's done. Okay? Now let me just say a, a couple words about, about the justification of the onslaughts. Because I think, again, there are lots of things one could say you could fall also into, into um, things that, are, uh, that, that, are, that miss how general, how general the reasons are to expect the onslaughts to hold. Let me put it that way. I, and, and this is where David and I, I think, are now about to reach a critical <laughs> point. Okay? 
the impact parameter. Yeah. We're about to reach a critical point. What I want to argue is, that, what I want to try and make, make vivid to you is why it was so reasonable to expect the Anzats to hold. At the end of the day, I'm going to argue, what, what I mean by that is that the holding of the Anzats would require no further explanation. And the non-holding of the Anzats would. I think that's sort of the deep explanatory situation. I think David's going to disagree with that. So I'm just going to, you know, so I've warned you, but let me know. <laughs> so, let's go back. We have, we have all our N1 particles. For each N1 particle, uh, it has this, you know, region that, a, that, a, that an attacker is going to have to be in in order to collide in the next ET. We then said, well, the Anzats tells me that the number of, of, of attacking particles that lie in these regions will just be this simple function. It'll be proportional, proportional to how much of the total physical space in the box is taken up by those regions. Right? Why think that? Well, here's something you could say. You could say, and again, let's assume that uh, 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 that the, the density is uniform. You might say, well, suppose I really, by a random process, stuck the attackers in, right? The attackers all have a, a given velocity, but I'm now deciding where to place them in space. And suppose I really use a random process with a flat probability distribution, meaning the probability of landing in any volume of space is just proportional to that volume. Okay? And let me make one more comment here. When I say a flat distribution, that's of course flat relative to what? Relative to a measure that's already hanging around. There is a measure that we've already been using. It's just volume measure. Right? It's the measure of volumes of space. We assume we have that going in. That is not on its face a statistical notion. It's not on its face a probabilistic notion. It's an actual measure of physical space we've been using in our physics from the beginning. But Tim, what, is it, what? what does it mean to, what is it that we're assuming? I mean, I, I think I'm actually, this, I'm not, I'm not yeah. this isn't the point where a disagreement is yeah. arising. That's just a math, I don't even know what it, what, why, why you have to assume anything there. Of course we have that as a mathematical notion. That measure. Well, you said a minute ago, we have to assume we have that going in. No, no, I'm not saying you have it going in. Oh, yeah, okay. The reason I'm saying that is because there's. No, so let me explain why I'm saying that. Okay. Partially it has to do with stuff in Scar's book, partially it has to do with your book. Okay. Where the issue of a measure comes up, often people say, but there are lots of measures. Right. You say that in your book as well. Yes. So you can't just wave your hand and say, use a measure. Right. Okay? Um, and then you worry, where does this measure come from? Right. In the back, and I'm going to, again, make a card. Are you worried, why is this the right measure to use? Right. Well, right. And you can also ask, yeah, what's, why expect that, or, or to put it in terms of that, why expect that measure, why think that measure is natural, or why think that measure wouldn't require any further explanation, or something like that. But wait, Tim, I, I mean, this is going to come up, but we have plenty yeah. of time to discuss this. Yeah. Is there a way you wanted to phrase, is, is there a reason why you wanted to phrase it other than what's the right measure to use? Yes, I want to show that it's tied to the volume measure that we already had independently of all this stuff. 
You, it, it, the it being the right one to use? Uh, the one I'm about to talk about. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. 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 I mean, the, the language here, I, I'm going to register one more complaint. Again, I'm not going to, you know, in the literature you will find people who say things like this. Use a bag neck. Okay? <laughs> that phrase makes no sense. It's just nonsense. It's, it's ungrammatical. Lebesgue measure is a measure over the real numbers. Okay, it's not a measure over physical space or anything else. It's a measure over the real numbers. If you put a coordinate system down of one kind or another on physical space, then you can say use Lebesgue measure relative to those coordinates. But then there's going to be an issue of why you use this coordinate system rather than another. Okay. But if your space-time means for the metric... Yeah, if you're, no, I, I'm saying, we've assumed from the beginning, apart from any of these statistical considerations, just when we're writing down the dynamics, just when we're characterizing that the box had a volume, that there's a, spa that there's a spatial measure. Right, but that should be right. coordinate-independent. Right? And it is coordinate-independent, exactly. So you can't, as I say, it, it's not the right thing to say it's a big measure. That's my, and some people, some philosophers will use that word. So they just mean locally used. What they mean is the, the right word, I mean, a better word uses natural measure. People will talk about the natural measure on phase space. But then you might say, what do you mean the natural measure on phase space? And part of the answer is, well, the measure that measures volumes of space in terms of volumes of space, right? The spatial volume that we've got. Now, it's a little bit trickier for phase space because you also need a measure of velocities, but you can see how um, a natural measure on distances in space also gives you a natural measure on velocities because I can talk about doubling the velocity of something exactly because I have a spatial measure, right? So I can talk about... It. So there's a, there is a natural measure on these things. By natural meaning, it is easily definable and sort of the only thing you'd ever think of defining in terms of the spatial, spatial temporal measure that you've got. Okay? Spatiotemporal metric. So you might say, well, suppose I, suppose I randomly throw the incoming attacker particles in. Well, what do you mean, this is the other point I made at the beginning, you have to tell me what randomly means. Randomly doesn't carry its meaning on its sleeve. And one thing you might say is, well, what I mean by randomly is with flat measure relative to the volume. So every, you know, the chance of landing in any piece of space is just proportional to the volume of that. Yes? If you do that, and you really think of this as a, you know, a kind of lottery, what's going to follow? Well, of course, it won't follow, again, analytically, that if, if, if the target agents take up a millionth of the space, then a millionth of the, of the randomly thrown in guys will have collisions. Because again, you could kind of run a bad luck, right? I mean, if you're literally throwing them in by a kind of random process, it could just miss, right? It just happened to miss. You could calculate the probability. Or maybe it's the other way around. It happens to throw them all in, right? Again, you could calculate the probability. But at this point, you now use the standard law of large numbers arguments that say, right, but if we're doing this with a hell of a lot of particles. And they're all, all these probabilities are independent and identically distributed. And if these are all technical terms, if you don't, don't shouldn't need to pause. I don't think I, there's a need to pause. Don't. But basically, you just have the idea that, you know, independently of one another, you're throwing them in at random, what you would think of as random, throwing darts, right? Then you say it becomes, as, as the number gets large, 
the probability that you deviate in any noticeable way from, say, a millionth of them going in. Again, assume that, that these are a millionth of the Vs that I'm throwing in 10 to the 23rd, you know, 10 to the 23rd particles at random. The chance that the actual number that land in there deviates significantly from the thing that goes into the ondots goes to zero and becomes rapidly very, very, very tiny. Okay? So then you say, so gee, if I, if I think of putting the particles in at random in that sense, then I have an argument that it's in some sense overwhelmingly likely, but not certain, that the ondots will hold. Now, the overwhelmingly likely not, but not certain is of course important because it also tells you that if I do it enough times, probably eventually the ondots won't hold, right? Probably if I, if I, if I do this random distribution over and over and over again long enough, eventually the bad penny will come up or the good penny will come up or whatever, and I will get something that, that deviates significantly from the ansatz in terms of the number of collisions. Now, the, the point I'm about to make, but, but, but I, what I want to say is here, you're, you're, you're appealing, again, I said randomly, and you said, well, what do you mean by randomly? I mean randomly with respect to the volume measure, and the volume measure is already there. The point I want to make is, of course, this argument, though, is much, much, you made on a much, much, much broader basis. So suppose you throw them in, but you don't throw them in randomly with respect to volume. Suppose um, you throw them in, and you're going to throw twice as many, right, twice as many in this half than in, than in this half. So it's going to be twice as dense here. Right? So it's not a random thing. But within this half, it's uniform. Well, now what you expect is, that, is again that the ondots will hold. You'll have twice as many collisions over here as over here, because there are twice as many particles over here as over here. But there still won't be a correlation with where you're throwing them and where the target regions are. Or divide it now, give me a very, very, very non-uniformly distributed gas, right? I have a gas that I've just, I've just piped it in here and it's very dense here and the density goes down. But the rate at which the density goes down is pretty slow relative to the size of these little regions. So each little region sits in a, in a region of fairly constant density around it. Can, Tim, can I yeah. ask this question? The, it, take the first case where there are two regions. Yeah. Um, um, so, um, so that's right. In each of the regions separately, the ansatz will hold. But the, the things like relaxation times that we would calculate for the two regions. No, the Soviet um, Because what you, all you want is for the number of collisions to be proportional to this. They'll still be the same number of collisions. The number of collisions is just a matter of the total number of guys that go in. Yeah, but if the density is lower, the number of collisions, I understand, if the density is, as the density goes to zero, the number of collisions goes to zero. Right, but the proportion is the same. No, but I'm not talking about the proportion. The, the, the number of, oh, I see. You mean a million of ones here will collide, a million of the ones here will collide, and they'll have distributed in Absolutely right. Yes. Everybody with? Yes. Okay. So the, so the, the number of particles that change their velocities will be different in the two regions. But the proportion exactly. of the particles present that change their velocities won't be different. Exactly. Good. 
So the velocity profile will still be exactly the same. Absolutely right. Right? Or suppose I do something, so here I'm thinking, if there's a variation in this density, but it's on a large scale relative to the scale of these little regions, then you'd still expect it. Well, what if I go the other direction? What if I make a density that varies very rapidly on the scale of these regions? So suppose I decide I carve this thing up into these little tiny thin bands, and I say, I'm only going to throw particles into these thin bands, and I'm going to leave the alternating bands empty. Right? So you see how it's very far from, in some sense, in some sense it's very far from a uniform distribution. But once again, you still expect the ansatz to hold. Right? Because this variation, you know, even though the ones that end up in the target region will either be bunched up in these little guys, you still expect in the regions where they intersect to be proportional. The only thing that's going to break your expectation of the ansatz is if there's a correlation between where the particles get thrown in and where these target regions are. And your thought ought to be, that would really be weird, right? That's the kind of thing that you think, why is that happening, right? The non-happening of that. You wouldn't think, you wouldn't think if the bands thing were true, you wouldn't think, why is that happening? Oh, no, you think, why is the banding happening? Yeah. But all I'm saying is, even if that happened, the ansatz would still. No, that's true. But ask yourself, you know, what is the, what is the, what would a, what would a, a, a kind of random process have to look like right. for it to be designed not to expect this, right? So I'm giving you all that. So I'm saying it's not. It, this expectation is not combined. The upshot is distribution. The upshot is there are some that would make a difference and others that wouldn't. Right. Okay. The, the ones that the ones that would have to say something like I it, yes. it, they're they're going to be specified. The only way you can talk about them is you actually specify them with reference to these very regions, right? So the original ones I specified without reference to these regions. I said, well, you know, maybe it's sort of like this, or maybe a sine wave, or maybe these stripes. But I didn't mention well, anything. Well, first put all the particles going this way on top, and all the particles going this way on the bottom. <laughs> Um, but, well, in, in this calculation, yeah. this would still work. Because, because remember, all of this is with, all of this is, well, you're, you're right, and yeah, you wouldn't get the grid, of course, but, what, am I, what do I want to say? At the level at which the velocity distributions are described, Right. Which is within some epsilon. Oh, I see. Okay. Right. Yeah. That would be a very special one. Right. Most of the ones described by the F that corresponds to what you just told me, this would still work. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're now having to go down to the micro state. Well, okay. I don't know. I, I, I mean, yeah, we know we know it won't work. Right. But I mean, I don't even know it. Suppose velocities were visible to us. Yes. Right. Then that, that would be a really distinct macro situation. All the ones on top are going this way, all the ones on the bottom are going that way. No, no, not at the uh, well, I don't know what you mean. But in the case of parts here, right, um, when you say they're all going this way, you really have to mean their velocities are exactly identical. If there's any slight drift, right, 
any tiny drift, that's because a chaotic system, right? right? Any tiny drift, eventually this guy will come in. No, eventually, but we're talking about calculating relaxation times, stuff like that. I agree with that. But if they're all even roughly going this way on top and going this way on the bottom, that's going to affect the expected relaxation time. I don't know that it will. Uh, this, is, so this is just a technical question. Well, wait, wait, wait. I mean, I've heard people say things like this. Yeah. Try and set up a box of gas in the kind of special state you're imagining. Right. Maybe one where over some uh, uh, noticeable period of time, macroscopic yeah. period of time, right. it fails to satisfy oh, right. this equation. Wait, wait, wait. wait, let me finish. Okay. And you, if you look at, say, the gravitational influence, right. and you say, if you move a pebble on Mars half a centimeter, Correct. okay, it will no longer be the special guy you want. I agree. Okay. Right. Right. So I want to say that level of precision is not something you would see. <laughs> okay. There's no disagreement about it being a continuous function of this angle. Right. Um, um, if the angle is zero, then nothing is right. ever going to happen, and the relaxation time will approach normal as a continuous function of this angle. It'll be continuous, but it will be very not. Yeah, it'll be very sharp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Okay, good. Sorry. Um, so, I, I think, I mean, part of what I'm trying to do is defend Maxwell and Boltzmann here. When they just went straight from calculating these volumes to writing down the collision number equation without dithering over the fact that you just multiply by dn and dn1 and dn2. It's easy to see that you can imagine situations where that wouldn't be the right thing to do, where the actual number of collisions won't be this. But when you start to try to, de to describe, if you, if you, 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 get, you get into a very specific kind of description of how they have to be distributed relative to these areas, right, in order to avoid this. So it's just, it, uh, the point is, it's just much more robust than you might think if you thought, oh, well, what they were doing was, assume, what you might do is look at this and say, they were assuming a flat distribution. And if you assume a flat distribution, then it's okay. Then you might say, gee, but see, that's a pretty strong assumption, a flat distribution. That's, you know, there are lots of ways a macroscopic box of gas could fail to have a flat uh, density distribution, right? When you put the gas in, it doesn't. There's more gas on one side than the other. So the point I'm just making is that it's a much, 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 a much more robust set of conditions that would lead you to expect this. Okay? Um, and one way of thinking about statistical explanation is that if you get it to that point, it counts as being explained. Right? If you, in other words, if I get it to this point and you, you now, I now have a box of gas in front of me and I fill it up and I wait a while and I check the velocity distribution and I find the velocity distribution is the equilibrium distribution and I calculated doing all this and I calculated relaxation times and everything and I get that the relaxation times ought to be pretty short on the time scale that we're looking at, there's a sense in which we, you want to say, okay, we're done. You know, there's nothing mysterious anymore. Our scientific explanatory work is over. Okay? And, conversely, if it didn't happen, 
right? If I filled the gas and I did all these calculations and after a minute it hadn't come to equilibrium, at that point I'd say my scientific work isn't done. Now, one could just say, of course, always, well, this is, after all, just a statistical explanation. I mean, I use the law of large numbers, and I say it's very likely, and blah, blah, blah. But even if I'm doing this at random, there's a chance, you know, a calculable chance relative to these probability measures that things will go bad. Okay? But the chance is so small that if it ever did go bad, now, so here's a claim about scientific methodology, and I don't know whether David agrees or not. The claim is, if it ever did go bad, we would never accept it was just a bad run of bad luck as the explanation. We'd always demand something more. We'd always demand to say, no, we have to say more than that. I mean, I don't know. If, if the probabilities are sufficiently small. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. If the probabilities are sufficiently small. Okay. Now, at this point... I mean, that's not the case for 10 coin flips or... or right, right, right. Absolutely. Right. If the right. probabilities are sufficiently small. Right, right. And, and you know, by... Yeah. <laughs> really, really... Right. Really small. Right. And you have to start running the numbers. You know, really... I mean, to the, just to, to put one third of these particles... To put out. the contrast on the table that's going to be discussed a lot for a long time, the contrasting view would be... Um, no. This... Yeah, you know, there are certain... That's right. There's a whole bunch of distributions where this will work well. There's a whole bunch of distributions where it won't work well. Um, and um, and the you know and um, and our use of the distributions that work well as opposed to the ones that don't work well is justified like other features of of our of the scientific claims we're committed to by its empirical success. Um, um, and that's it. Um, so that's going to be the right. contrast. That's the, that's so the does everybody see the contrast here, right? I'm, I'm pushing the, the, the side that says the story has a certain naturalness and so on. I mean, David, right. and we like what the hell natural is here, empirically good, the only justification we ever have for believing is empirical, right. the only reason we would ever use any of these measures is because they actually work. Right. I've been trying to insist that, well, well wait, 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 these wait. measures are coming no, up to, already. And don't, to say the only reason we would ever use these measures sounds like you're making a psychological claim. You mean the, the only reason that it would be scientifically correct to use any of these measures is that they're empirically successful. Yeah. Or maybe the way... There may be all kinds of psychological okay. facts about which measures we would use and which measures we wouldn't would, use. Uh, under what... Uh, let me try... Maybe we can get this chart. Are there any conditions under which... Suppose we have a measure and it actually is empirically... It gives us... You know, we're using it in some way and it gives us an empirical, empirically correct results. Right. Are there ever any conditions under which you would say, nonetheless, I think that stands in need of further explanation? Or, or is it always the case that, that you could always stop there and say, well, there's nothing more to say. That's why you ought to describe it using this. Yeah, method. sure. I mean, there, there are circumstances. I mean, that's how you distinguish between, I don't know, there are other criteria for distinguishing between 
posits that we take to posits in our theory that we take to be fundamental as opposed to other ones. So so there might be things that are that we use that are empirically successful, but which we have various other commitments which discourage us from believing these are fundamental or or something like that. Okay? So, you know, the, the laws of thermodynamics are successful, but we have reasons for believing that they couldn't be fundamental, okay? But if MA, if F equals MA worked out all the time, then we'd say, yeah, we're using it because it, it works out all the time, and it meets maybe certain theoretical criteria we like, simplicity, uh, uh, I don't know what. Um, but maybe I wasn't understanding. No, no, I, I mean, I think this is exactly, you know, I, I'm, I'm... So, yeah, I can imagine other reasons. Yeah, okay. Um, but, but I can also imagine reasons for saying these look fundamental, they right. satisfy certain other theoretical desiderata, they're empirically adequate, perfectly good to stop there. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Check something. So when we were talking about the, the naturalness of this and stuff, yeah. we seem to be sometimes running together the arguments that are just based on density and volume and the naturalness of that measure. Yes. Um, with something that involves also the velocity distribution. Because they looked at density by itself is not enough, even a uniform density by itself is not enough to guarantee we'll be the kind of system that is going to. Now, no, I'm not sure I'm following the question. So the, the, the ansatz is being used to give us an equation for the dynamics of the velocity distribution. Yeah. Right. So we're not making any assumptions about it at all. We, we, we have, you know, whatever the incoming one is, initial one, it is what it is. We're not trying to explain no, that. Right. We're trying to explain how that will probably evolve. Okay. So we identified that there could possibly be states that have a uniform density distribution. Yes. But that which, even given the dynamics, yes. wouldn't evolve to the state where it's Absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to say, look, those are low probability, they won't happen, they're to be explained rather And the thought, the question is sort of where does that, those assumptions come from? Because that doesn't come from the naturalness of the measure on what Wait, 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 I'm not, maybe you said this, the following thing, but let me say it and then tell me whether it was what you just said. What I said was that if Given this argument, if in fact the ansatz holds, right? If I look at a system and I find that it's behaving in accordance with the ansatz and therefore behaving in accordance with this uh, uh, dynamical equation for the for the distribution, I think my explanatory work is done. I don't think there's anything more I need to explain. If it doesn't hold, then I think there is. Right. That then there's an explanatory burden that comes on my shoulders. Now, it's one that, in principle, I can discharge exactly because we know the dynamics allow us. Right? It's important here. It's critically important that the dynamics allows non-anzatsi evolutions. Because that means the fact that, I, that there is a non-anzatsi evolution is not by itself casting doubt that my microdynamics was correct. Right? There's room within the microdynamics. My claim is that the explanatory situation is, insofar as the ansatz holds, we think our explanatory work is done. Insofar as it is, it doesn't, we think there's more explanatory work to do. Okay, that sort of 
No, I'm not getting what I mean to, but that's because it's got our epistemic state in that, look, we think we have something successful, we're happy with it, while it's still successful, when it's not successful, we'll sort of ask more questions and try and do more work. Um, but the thought is that in ex- when we when we do the work of justifying sort of why we came to this arm starts beyond the fact that some of it seems to be working quite fine, we wanted to have some probability assumptions in there that said, look, Velocity distributions, starting velocity distributions, which won't via the dynamics lead towards the effective distribution, are going to be very rare. Don't we want that in there as well? Well, I, I mean, I mean, let me just again, again, and maybe this is getting into the dialectic between David and me, and the, the reason why I want to go through this in detail. Of course, nobody, Maxwell Boltzmann, nobody tried to ju- justify this by appeal to its empirical success. When you actually look at the arguments, they didn't say, oh, now we assume that this. Now let's see where that goes, and gee, if that goes somewhere good, then I ought to assume it, or something like that. That would be saying, I'm going to, you know, it's a guess, let's check it in critical sense. They didn't, they wrote that down and said, obviously, right? They said, almost without comment, and certainly without any appeal to what the empirical consequences of the Anzac would be, because they haven't worked it out yet. They said, look, if there are n one of these guys and n two of these guys, then the number of collisions ought to go linearly with n one and n two, right? Um, it, it, it's almost as if I mean I would almost put it this way: if you made for them, if you made this ansatz and you worked out by the dynamics and you got the wrong answer for what actually happens. They'd go back and, and fiddle with the dynamics. <laughs> right? They wouldn't go and fiddle with the ansatz. <laughs> it just in terms of what its status is. Okay, right? Right. So, so let's go back to the ansatz. Yeah. A lot of what we were saying at the end was trying to justify why that was a reasonable assumption to make, yeah. why we were allowed to just put it added in there. Yeah. Some of those arguments are about density and there being a measure of the phase safety to naturally given the volumes. Yeah. But that's only part of the story because that doesn't give us anything about or doesn't determine the velocity distributions we have. But we're not trying to explain the velocity distributions. At least the starting ones, because there will be some of them which are going to be, which we want to say are strange, odd, unusual ones that don't lead Okay, I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. I, these are just these are just orthogonal questions. Mm-hmm. Right? So the way I'm conceptualizing this they want, a, a, they want to get this, a, dynam- a, a time dynamics for distributions. Okay? This is an argument to give me that. If you then ask, yeah, but what distributions should I expect to see in the world? Which distributions will actually occur if I open my eyes? None of this tells you anything about that. It's like, you know, it's like saying, in the case of, of just collisions of, you know, in, in case of regular dynamics, I have, say, Newton's laws of motion that give me a dynamics for how positions and, and momentum will change between particles. But if you say, okay, but what should I expect to see when I open my eyes about what the actual positions and momentum of particles are, I say, who knows, right? The dynamical equation doesn't tell me anything about that. It doesn't suggest anything. So, no, no, my job at this point is to justify this equation about how F ought to change, not what F ever will be. 
But, but you see, you're, you're obviously dissatisfied, but I'm trying to understand why. Well, that keeps me pulling back a lot. I mean, so we were concerned with establishing what kind of distributions would be equilibrium ones. Yeah. That seems to be making, saying something about what we expect to see in the world after a certain amount of time, a reasonable relaxation. It, 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 it depends. Take the whole universe. I can use this to derive a, a, an equilibrium distribution for the universe, but you're never going to see it. Right, but the thought was that the nice we're using that is going to get us something that happens in finite times. It's kind of useful. It's going to sort of tell us what to do. Sure, but that's just that's just to say that the input, which f's do I really care about? That comes from somewhere else. That comes from observation, right? It comes from some other empirical input, right? Why are we? I'm I'm, I'm really puzzled about why we're having because you seem really dissatisfied, and I'm 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 I'm. Maybe I'll try and rethink my dissatisfaction. I'm missing what it is, right? I, it's just these are these are just questions that don't intersect with each other. The question: How should I expect a distribution to evolve in time? And what distributions are there actually now, whose evolution I now want to predict? Those are just completely orthogonal to each other, right? I can give you an answer to this question, and now you say, "But what f should I apply this to?" I don't know. Look around. I mean, you know, you need to open your, you need to set up a box of gas or something. I mean, what, the, the, the equation, the dynamical equation just won't tell me what to expect for the initial conditions. No, it won't. I thought that's what the Adam Stutz was doing. Because what we were going to explain down the end of it was why most boxes of gas prepared in various ways left to themselves after a certain amount of time. Okay, but that's fine. I mean, if you, in other words, if you, if you derive this equation for what? For a box of gas of a certain size, right, and a certain number of particles, it will give you typical relaxation times to equilibrium. And those times, and you can calculate those, and those times will presumably be very short on regular scale, you know, half a second. And if that's true, then you're going to say, okay, set up a box of gas like that on the table, wait half a second, you should probably find an equilibrium. Is that okay? Or, no. <laughs> uh, okay, everybody's abandoning the ship. So I guess, uh, I guess we should leave that here at that point. Okay. A reasonable place. Good, 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 good.